HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by EscapeMaker.com. Visit a farm. Escape through the net. Visit EscapeMaker.com for more. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. We're coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, August 5th. This is the 74th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guests are two amazing restaurateurs, and I will introduce them in a moment. First, as I do in every show, I will start out with my PR tip. Then later, we will have my speed round game industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. Today's tip is to be collaborative. Join forces with others to make a stronger whole. We all have different skill sets, and by bringing our expertise to the table, we can accomplish great things together. Working solo certainly has its perks, but shared efforts can go far if it's the right fit. So be open for collaboration. That's my tip today. Now, this is, this is really cool. I have great guests here today. I'm very excited to have in the studio. First, we have Jimmy Carboni, a New York City-based restaurateur, dedicated social entrepreneur, and beer lover. In addition to overseeing Jimmy's Number 43, an East Village bar and restaurant, Jimmy produces unique events through the Good Beer Seal and Food Karma Projects, and he's the host of Beer Sessions Radio here on Heritage Radio Network, where he discusses the craft beer movement. My next guest is King Fujana Kong. He is the chef owner of two New York City restaurants, Kuma Inn on the Lower East Side and Uminam in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. King graduated Dean's List from the Culinary Institute of America and has worked with notable chefs including Danielle Ballou and David Boulay. King supports several charities focusing on efforts on hunger relief and culinary education. Now, Jim, Jimmy and King have recently collaborated on a new menu at Jimmy's number 43 called Tito King's Kitchen. 
So welcome, Jimmy and King. Thanks, Sherry. Thanks, thanks for, for having, having us. Yeah, thanks for having us on the show. I'm excited to have you both here. And, you know, both, I, you know, I gave little brief bios. Both of your backgrounds are really impressive. But one thing that I caught in, in your bio, Jimmy, was this dedicated social entrepreneur. Never seen that before. I think that that came about from kind of working in the food world. And uh, it, it was a term that, you know, from hosting, whether it's a, a get-together or let's say a new group like Food Plus Tech Connect is, is going to start having meetings. I've been able through Jimmy's Number 43 to, to host different groups in the back room and as an extension, taking your PR tip to collaborate. So over the years with groups like New Amsterdam Market or Slow Food NYC and the old Food Systems Network, I started, I started organizing different types of food tasting events around the city. And yeah, to collaborate. And I guess that's what you call a social entrepreneur. I loved it. I was like, it's great. So, Jimmy, tell me a bit about your background, how you, how you came to starting Jimmy's Number 43. I mean, it goes way back. I mean, you know, King is someone that's, you know, went to, went to CIA and, and is, is, a, is a great chef. I was more like the, the wayward traveler. I was, you know, I went to college in New York, and I basically missed having the hospitality and food of my family and, and the large family I had. And it, it kind of made me always wonder, where am I going to have my breakfast? Where am I going to have my lunch? And I didn't like eating in the school cafeteria. And it turned out that I dropped out of college a couple of times. And what I did when I was out of school was, was I got to travel and hitchhiked and went to far places in Europe and California. And I basically was, was trying to get a lunch. <laughs> so I would, I would in, in San Francisco, I would camp out and have veggie burritos in the Mission. Or, you know, as I traveled across Eastern Europe, when I was 18 years old, all I thought about was where am I going to get my lunch? And somehow that's kind of like led me to this career. The food was kind of number one. It drove you lunch. That's great. And King, what about you? What led you to the food culinary world? Uh, food, of course. Uh, I love to eat. Uh, you know, growing up, I was born here in New York City, and uh, my mom, my mom's from the Philippines, and she would send us, uh, me and my, my brother and I, she would send us to the Philippines every summer. And we probably, you know, school ended here. Uh, the next day we're on a plane in the Philippines. And my family over there doesn't live in the city. They live in a very rural part. And uh, it was, it was you know, quite a culture shock every time uh, we'd go there. And then literally we're there for three months. And, the next, uh, on, and then three months later we're on a plane. We fly back to New York. And the next day we're back in school again. So it was a big, a big culture shock. You know, in the Philippines, the tallest building there is like where, where, where we stayed, where we're from. It's like uh, six stories high, very rural, the opposite of the city. So, um, you know, I got involved with uh, all my cousins are there, and we're like one, we're one big family, my extended family. We're almost like brothers. It's all guys. <laughs> so uh, we'd always go, you know, eating. Everything would focus around eating. So sitting down and having a meal was a production because there were eight of us, eight cousins plus the parents. So we had two tables, and that was breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It was just a production all the time, and but a good production. I mean, I, I loved it. And uh, coming back here to New York is totally different. It was just me and my brother, my mom and dad. And, you know, being in the city, it's tough. Both parents are working. Just to sit down and eat together was a big deal. Uh, so we didn't get that quite as often. And just over the years, I mean, I, I just love to eat. You know, if, if you know me, you see me. <laughs> I, I just love eating. And I came to a point where I said, you know, I really want to learn how to, uh, to do this stuff and not just eat good food, but I want to know how to, how to make it as well. So um, one of my jobs, I was uh, doing energy management for quite a while, and um, I used to bartend on the weekends. 
And one of the places I bartended, I asked if I, I could work in the kitchen. And uh, the chef was really cool. He's like, yeah, you know, everybody needs a break. He's like, come on in. You can start next weekend. And I went in and never looked back. I wound up working there. So I was working seven days a week to, between the energy management and working in kitchen for about a year. And then I applied to CIA and I got in. And I didn't look back. Uh, just started cooking, working, eating, and all over the place. Yeah, no, that's so, it's the love of food that broke, I mean, another thing you you have in common, you know. It's a passion, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it's it's true. I, I You know, I don't know if people say it all the time, or but I really find it in this business. I mean, if, if you don't love what you do, uh, you know, you're going to be miserable. It's, it's not meant for everybody. Running a yeah. restaurant, being a chef, you know, it's, it's not Food Network. This is not like TV and fun times. I mean, you have fun times, don't get me wrong, but most of it's just hard labor. It's a hard uh, industry. It's a tough sure. industry, you know, and, and I, I see people all the time coming in with the wrong uh, a misconception, and, and it's, it's different from what it is. It's not cut out for everybody. Right. But you definitely have to have that passion. May I ask King one question? I didn't know you were Dean's List at the Culinary Institute of America. <laughs> so I, how about if, can you tell us, like, there must be these levels of, you know, hierarchy, like who finished at the top. And, you know, what was that like being at the school and coming out of there, been, having been one of the top culinary students? Well, well you know, the, the good thing was that I was a career changer. You know, I already had my uh, degree. I was doing energy management. I had a psych degree. I have a psych degree in archaeology minor. And going to culinary school was, uh, was a career change. So when I went back this time, you know, I, I gave up my career and basically moved back to C- moved up to CIA, lived in a dorm. I was in my uh, mid-20s. Uh, and, you know, the second time around, it's like, you know, this is what you want to do now. I mean, I still had a good time and partied, but this is really what I want to do. So I, I, be- I was like the group leader. I gave the graduation speech. I ran a club. You know, I, I did the whole <laughs> it's impressive. thing. impressive. Yeah, and... Um, yeah, it was it was great. So, um, and and that's what led me to, uh, you know, at CIA you had to do your uh, your internship, and I remember a lot of my classmates said, "Oh, we're going to go to Jamaica, you know, work in one of the resorts. So you get like twenty bucks an hour. You get to stay on the beach." And it was just me and one other classmate. We're like, uh, "Yeah, we're going to stay in the city. I'm going to work at Danielle. He's going to work at Les Panas, and we're going to get this much, the big fat zero. And uh, well, actually, my friend Les Panas got paid because it was union over there at the time. But where I was at Danielle, it was the original Danielle. It, there was no union. Right. <laughs> was like a step above slave labor. But amazing experience. <laughs> and yes. when you were in school, did you think you wanted to open your own restaurant one day? Yeah, eventually. I mean, I think that's everyone's uh, dream or goal. You know, who who goes to uh, I think culinary school. It's you reach that certain point in your career, well, you know, where you decide, well, I'm I'm working for this guy, or what's the next step? Right. You know, I want to. You, you have control of the menu, but you know, I, I want my own place. And so you opened Kuma Inn in two thousand three. Two thousand three. Okay. Yeah. We've been open about twelve years now. I opened about five years after I graduated. Um, I wasn't really planning on opening it that fast. Actually, I was. At the time uh, when Kuma Inn came up, the opportunity was actually working in California. I just took um, a position at Chez Panisse, and we were negotiating a full-time job there. And then I got a call from uh, a friend of mine in New York and said, I found this space. I think you might like it. And uh, he described it. And at the time, Lower East Side was still kind of <laughs> nitty-gritty. You know, It wasn't, yeah. uh, wasn't really uh, what it is now, like a big uh, tourist spot. 
and uh, and it was on the second floor as well. So so the landlord he was like, yeah, you could have it for a song and a dance. We're on the second floor. I'm like, mm. so I I told the people at Shapenese I got to go back home for a little bit. I need to check on something and. I'll let you know. And I called him back and said, you know, I'm going to stay at home. An opportunity came up and we parted in good terms. I love, I've been there and I love the second floor, you know, Thanks. hidden gems that you find in New York. It's cool. You go, you're, it's a cool restaurant. Thank you. Yeah. I, you know, I, I thought when I opened it that I was uh, not really starting a trend, but I thought, you know, this is the future. I mean, five, 10 years from now, we're all going to be on the second floor or higher because <laughs> New York City is getting built out. You know, just like in Asia, they do that. Hong Kong, uh, Thailand, Japan, everything. You know, you go to a bar, it's on like the 25th floor. Uh, but I don't know, it hasn't taken off here yet. So maybe it's another 10 more years. <laughs> well, they're constantly building in New York. Building. It's like never, New York is never done. No. <laughs> so no. we'll see. And Jimmy, so you opened Jimmy's in, tell me, 2006? Am I? Uh, 2005. So it's almost our 10 year anniversary next month. Oh, awesome. And how did you find your space, Lower um, East Village? Well, I, I had already had. See, unlike King King, was I was, and I, I want to ask him about what it was like working at Shape and East because I never knew any of these stories. <laughs> and and uh, I have a whole bunch of stories. You know, for he, he's a trained chef. The, the and, after and show. <laughs> I always wish that I, had, even when I was younger, I, I, I always thought about I should go to culinary school. But I think that I'm more of like the owner host type person, and and I, I really was driven to it by the beverages. So. I started buying wine and, t- and took a sommelier class, and that's kind of led me to having a place that's really more beer-focused and, and beverage-focused. But um, I had had a first restaurant where I kind of learned all my chops. I, I cooked, I ran it, and expanded it. So I kind of did everything you know in, in 10 years that you, that you do when you work for someone else. And uh, when that lease was up, um, I found a, a space that was more suited to me, a little bigger, and, and not on the second floor, but in the basement. <laughs> I was about to so, say that also has a major coolness factor. <laughs> Once you know, it is. You walk down the stairs; it's like it's also another gem in New York. Mm-hmm. So well, you know, t- yeah. talking about great, you know. Places to hang out. I was used to admire the Har- the original Harry's Bar in Venice, and once I read about the the founder, and it was like one of those end of the, end of the line kind of dead end streets, and so I feel that way. But being in the basement, there's this bustling world going on above you. But when when you're a street street front restaurant in New York City, there's like taxis and traffic, and 99 percent of the people walking down the street will never be your customers in like a cool bar or restaurant. So by being in the basement, I don't lose. Any customer traffic because they wouldn't come in anyways. What I gain is that there's a little bit of privacy. So we like we don't even have to have a doorman or something because literally most people won't even walk down the stairs and the stairs acts as its own filter and I love it. So I, I think King's right. Either the second floor restaurant or the basement bar for me that's that's an invitation to check it out. Good to know if I'm looking for a space. But I didn't give you. Any, <laughs> but I, so I, I, I found a space again. A space was yeah. built out, shook hands, you know, rented it, and right. uh, kind of old school stories. But that's that's why I'm in the business because I, I actually my first restaurant I found it was a handshake deal. An old school landlord had had a, a restaurant that had been closed for a couple of years in the East Village, and literally he just didn't want to deal with it or didn't like anyone that was coming for the you know to look at it. And I literally said, I'm a young guy, I don't have any money. We shook hands, and, and he gave me some time to get it open. I didn't have to start paying him until after three or four months. And uh, that led to being my first restaurant for 10 years. So, Yeah, so what led to this collaboration then? Uh, the Tito, Tito's, Tito King's Kitchen. Uh, well, the same thing that brought us here is uh, food and drink, you know. Uh, 
Jimmy's a big fan of Kumin, so he comes and eats there all the time. And I used to go and drink at his place. And we we, we actually met doing a uh, some charity work with uh, what was that? Spoons Across uh, America. The Days of Taste program. Days, Days of Taste with Spoons Across America. So teaching first and second graders about food, where it comes from, about taste and flavor and texture. And the last day of the four or five week course, they they come to your restaurant. And half the class splits up, and half the class sets up the dining room. The other half works with you in the kitchen. Then they take turns, and and then you get to sit down all together and have a great meal. So uh, we did that for a few years. And a lot of New York City chefs were in it, like Peter Hoffman from the Savoy. The, the I can't remember the name of the tasting room on First First Street. Oh. The chef uh, Colin, he was in the program, and, and everyone took their own tack on it. Colin. Well, there, were, there were four or five tastes we, we could talk about, but Colin started talking to the kids about umami. And Peter Hoffman, that he was legendary and that he set up, you know, he wanted them to, to see all the different types of potatoes. So he brought like 20 potatoes to a, a classroom in the East Village at the Earth School. Mm-hmm. So it was a very cool program. And it was like early to mid 2000s. And yep. uh, we met a lot of people that way. And, and it's, it's, it's a sense of giving back, mm-hmm. you know, for chefs and restaurant owners sure. to do something like that and go into, into school in your neighborhood. And years later, I actually had a, a girl when she turned 16, she remembered me from the program and she came in for her 16th birthday dinner with her family. Oh, that's great. So it's, you, you really do make connections that way. Yeah, but at the time when you met, you probably didn't think you'd be opening or collaborating on a project together, or did you, in the back of your mind? No, not yet. We we uh, we did before that. We did uh, we did Pig Island. Right? Yep. And, um, King, King's always cooked at Pig Island. A couple with me. of yep. other uh, For people don't other know, that don't know, what's Pig Island? So Pig Island, is it's a, it's a culinary event that uh, celebrates its about 25 New York City chefs, and the event, which I organize, buys uh, pigs from upstate New York farmers. And the, that's the whole mission. The event is giving money back to the farmers upstate. They put that money into their community, and we give the, the pigs to the chefs. And the chefs get to work with you know, whole local, local pigs, nose-to-tail cooking, and each one does their own culinary project. So it's not a barbecue event. You know, King, what, what were some things you used to make? Because you have a great pig repertoire. Wow, we, we, we've, done, <laughs> we've done a whole bunch of stuff there. Um, Put that on your resume. <laughs> some of the highlights. What did we do? We did uh, well a lot of Filipino style things. We did with the pork. Uh, I remember breaking it down and uh, using the uh, the legs and the ham. We were doing. Um, we made adobo out of that, like a pulled pork adobo. And then with the ribs, I remember uh, deboning the ribs and rolling it out and doing like a uh, a roast, basically like a pig roast. You know, garlic, lemongrass, uh, salt, roasting it, and then slicing it. Then we'd get to, uh, it was either Governor's Island or Red Hook, and uh, just grill it up on the grill and then slice it. It's a great it. event. It's coming back September 12th, too, so we'll be, Artito King's Kitchen will be there. We'll be doing Lachon. Tell, tell them what the Lachon is. Uh, Lachon, it's a whole pig, a whole roasted pig. Um, so, uh, you know, they, depending on the size, anywhere from four to six hours, we roast the whole pig. In the Philippines, it's... Uh, it's a celebratory dish. You'll find it at birthdays, weddings, you know, um, religious holidays, and comes right out on the table, the whole pig, and we slice it up, and everybody gets what the parts they like, you know, the crispy skin, the, the nice uh, tender meat inside, some of the legs, some of the face, and then what, whatever, whatever's left over of that carcass, uh, we take and we make a stew out of it. So for the latecomers of the party, or if you've been drinking and you get hungry later on, you get to have that stew. And the stew is like kind of like a soy vinegar stew made with the carcass, and you eat that with rice, and the party never stops. But th- that was one thing that did, did make us collaborate, is that you know, when I grew up in my north of Boston Italian community, 
and King's, you know, Philippine American community, I've realized that that they're both cultures of eating and drinking. And it wasn't like eating to excess. It was more that everyone had get-togethers with food and drink. And that's something. Maybe you want to say something about that because that's something I only learned about King from collaborating about his culture. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, Jimmy and I got got very close working on these events together. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's great. I mean, not only we're, we're, we're partners in this thing, but the nice thing is we're friends, you know, which is, which is great in the business to be friends and do something together. Um, we love what we do, you know, and, and I think it reflects in the food and the, the drink and the whole package that we put together. I think so too. Uh, okay. I'm thinking I have a visual of this, this, this pig island and I'm getting hungry and we're going to take a break. (laughs) (laughs) So stay with us. This is all in the industry on heritage radio network. Visit a farm. Log on to escapemaker.com for more ideas on local weekend getaways and day trips, including orchards, farms, and wineries. Or come by Escapemaker's Yellow Tent in Grow NYC's Green Markets and pick up a guide to local agritourism escapes to the Green Market's own farmers and producers. The guide will be updated seasonally to feature farms, wineries, and destinations in New York City, New York State, New Jersey, Vermont, and Pennsylvania. Plus, Escape Maker will offer overnight packages to these destinations so you can get the full experience. No car? No problem. Escape Maker features plenty of ideas for car-free getaways, including discounts via Amtrak. There's no better time to explore outside the city. Soak up the fresh air and scenery like a butterfly and support your local farmer. Log on to escapemaker.com to get inspired and make your escape through the net. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guests today are Jimmy Carboni and Chef King Fojanakong. Now I messed it up. Got it. Fojanakong. Got it. Uh, and they've recently launched Tito King's Kitchen at Jimmy's. So let's talk about this this menu. I stopped by this weekend and I was able to taste a few very delicious things like wings. <laughs> the wings, yeah. You know, I, I love wings. Uh, yeah, I think uh, and Jimmy likes the wings too. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a, there's a specific story. So we had been like we've been friends. We've, we've cooked together and a lot of things over the years. Um, Last fall, I think it was November 2014, the Times Dining section put out uh, like a whole section on, on wings and the best wing recipes in New York City. And, and King's was one of the recipes that was featured, and it was the chicken wings adobo. And from that, that's kind of what made us start talking about collaborating. Because I was looking, I mean, now we're, I've been at Jimmy's number 43 for 10 years. And the last couple of years, I've had a very simple, like, kind of more bar menu. Even though there's farm ingredients, it's very simple. And I was starting to think in the back of my mind, I want to reinvent the kitchen for, like, the next 10 years. And part of that would be what, what 
single ingredient what I what I really want to want to sell. And when I saw the wings article, I started thinking that that would be a good thing. But th- these wings are different. Like I don't I'm not really a wings guy. Like wings that are just fried or the way you get them in a lot of restaurants. That's not really what I like. What I like is chicken. And what King makes is with, is chicken with good flavor. <laughs> Because you're talking about the adobo sauce, right? Yes, yes. It's a it's a Filipino adobo. It's a it's a dish I grew up eating. My mom would cook for us. It, it, you know, it's our comfort food at least once a week. You can smell it coming up the elevator, the vinegar and the soy sauce. But basically, a, a Filipino adobo has three main ingredients: it's uh, vinegar, soy sauce, and garlic. Um, typically, use chicken or pork. And uh, but you know, these days you could call make anything kind of adobo with that vinegar. Uh, soy and garlic so basically you braise your protein in that in that liquid and um so and then it you eat. falls off the bone which is what i yeah. like i like chicken that falls off the bone yeah you know the way it started was it was actually for um for preservation in the philippines back in the day because there's uh the philippines is composed of about seven thousand islands so getting from one island to another, you have to take a ship. Uh, and I'm talking about way back in the day before, <laughs> before we were here. <laughs> but uh, before refrigeration. And so the guys would get around on ships. And, and this is one of the dishes that they could keep there because of the, uh, the acidity and the vinegar would pretty much take, would, wouldn't allow anything to grow inside that chicken or inside their dish. So they would keep that in big vats on the boat. And it would last for days, for weeks, basically. And also when you're cooking it... Uh, all the fat comes up to the top, and that added another layer of protection because that fat solidifies. So they would, when they were hungry, they would break off a piece of that fat, heat that up, scoop into the vat, get some of the sauce, get some of that protein, and reheat it in that fat. Oh, wow, interesting. And then you eat like that. a confit, yeah. right? It's a confit. And, and, I mean, it's a very uh, traditional fi- um, dish in the Philippines. Uh, like I said, my mom would cook it for us uh, all the time. Uh, she would basically take a whole chicken, break down the whole chicken, and also throw parts of uh, pork belly in there. The pork adds a little more richness and, and brings the whole dish together. And uh, what, what I've done at, at Jimmy's, um, Tito King's at Jimmy's, is I've, I've just, uh, I'm making a double with just the wings. You know, when you think of, a, of bar food and stuff, everybody loves wings, you know? Uh, like, sure. Jim, like Jimmy said, well, maybe not everybody, but people love chicken. And uh, just trying to stay, you know, do something different from your typical, like, fried buffalo wings or something. So we braise this first, and then we uh, kind of dry it. And then when the order comes in to pick it up, we just uh, deep fry it. So it's it's crispy on the outside, but inside, I mean, it's like a lollipop. You could just take the meat right off the bone, and there'll be nothing left on there. Yeah, it's true. It was delicious. And I, I agree with the fall off the bone. Is It's what I want, too, because I find wings can be awkward to be eating <laughs> or difficult you know messy and th- these were not these just it was just delicious so i was glad i got to try that and then what are what are other things you're doing on the menu uh other things we're doing i'm doing um a- another um adobo dish with pork belly uh so i'm, I'm braising the pork in uh, an adobo braise and then uh for the pickup we are uh we're kind of pan roasting it and then we slice it and we put it in a taco in a corn tortilla and then inside that tortilla we have uh, pickled onions and we make a Thai chili lime sauce using Thai chilies fish sauce garlic palm sugar and that that's kind of like the spicy sauce you have the pickles and the, and the pork belly very simple but all those flavors together and nice cold beer you're all set it's a good combo <laughs> yeah, yeah with your beers because you let's talk about your beers a bit here so you have a lot of I mean 
Well, you know more about it than me. <laughs> I'm not an expert, but what I will say is that that's what drew me to the industry was that, yes, I was looking for lunches, and I, I loved I, – I can't – I could never have an office job because I like to eat when I want. I like to take a walk, and if I want a, a taco or a snack or walk – I love to walk in the kitchen, and as the cooks were prepping, I just want to eat some chopped vegetables. I mean, I kind of like to eat all day, and, and I could never sit in an office. So uh, what am I trying to say? But what, what, what really drew me in was I said it was – first, it was like a love of wine because I, I worked in a place, and I was got to buy the wine, and I read Kermit Lynch's Adventures on the Wine Route when I was like 25. And next thing you know, I was like, I want to learn all I can about wine. And I took the Sommelier Society of America course. And next thing you know, I was kind of like, suddenly I was without a job because they're like, well, we don't need you to be the wine buyer at this little restaurant. And kind of through some journeys, I, I got to work at Becco for two weeks with um, those guys. And, and the two boots I worked at, and I was trying to find out, could I be a manager of a restaurant? And I realized, no, I really wanted to have my own place. And what, what drove me, though, was beverages. So along the way... Uh, first by drinking wine and, and getting to, to work with great the great importers and distributors of wine in New York City, which I think I think New York has the best wine scene. At the time, the, uh, there was a great beard scene starting, too, where mm-hmm. Brooklyn Brewery had an offshoot called the Craft Brewers Guild. And uh, because I was buying wine, they came and gave me the full tasting. And I, I started tasting everything from Chimay to the great Schneider Aventinas from Germany and, and some new American beers at the time, like Rogue, from you know Oregon and, and Brooklyn Brewery, and so as I grew, as I, as I was learning in my first restaurant, I also got to keep tasting all the great beers. So right. when I uh, went to the the space that's now Jimmy's Number Forty Three, it was it, it was there were a lot of reasons that made it a beer focused place. Besides my love of beer, first it was on the same street as McSorley's. <laughs> Second of all, in the building upstairs, it was Burp Castle, and it was where the first New York City homebrewers group was founded. In the '80s, and where guys like Garrett Oliver was 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 only making homebrew then, so it's got it's, we call it the beer. It was yeah. the Brewmeter Triangle, and there was also only a beer beer only license. So basically, my choice was: I'm going to open a place with a beer focus, or I'm not going to open that place at all. So that's what it was. Is circumstances you know dictated how I opened my right. this restaurant, and there was a beer only license, and it didn't even get wine for like another year. It took that long to, to transfer and upgrade. So that was what Barry had an experience of over 10 years of drinking and tasting great beers. And it was the exact same moment that Six Point had just been, it was the first new brewery in New York City in a long time. So that was the final thing was that, wow, Six Point, there's a new brewery in New York City making great beer that I love. And I love all the European beers. So I kind of came at that right moment when craft beer was just taken off in New York City. So that's why it's a beer place. Yeah. And just touch on briefly there's the timing of this also the you just have to go through this big explosion that happened in your neighborhood very close to your restaurant and i know you've had to deal with that um i mean what's what's that what was that experience like and you know you know i think I'm, we were I'm, all feeling i think Kim and i were both that's a, we're both seasoned restaurant owners you know i went through my first place there was 9-11 and i had just expanded before that at Jimmy's number forty three, we went through Hurricane Sandy and some subsequent issues. So, it's kind of like we're, we're at this point now. You know, I've been doing this twenty one years in my own restaurant. I'm a seasoned restaurant owner, and shit's going to happen. You know, and uh, so that happened. It was really bad. Some people died. We were shut down. There's still work in our building every day, and uh, we, we keep going. But the timing worked out great because King and I had been playing this before. So it kind of tied in. Kind of just when yeah. we were reopening, King King was coming with a new menu. So it, it, it was perfect timing, but. It was it, it was tough, and and you, you want to talk about hard knocks. I mean, anyone that owns a restaurant for more than a few years, 
uh, I, I had a friend, she told me once she had a restaurant in the 90s, and I just assumed she had it for a long time because, you know, I've always stuck with what I do. And I realized later she only had the restaurant for two or three years and she got out of it. And she always talked about how much she had been in the restaurant business. So it's like, I don't think you really can even talk about it until you've had a restaurant for like 10 years. <laughs> because if you have, have had it less than that, you don't know. Because there's so many cycles, you know. There's boom and bust yeah. and disasters. And, and, yeah. and that's what it's like. Especially in New York. Okay, so before we take a break, I have a question from my guest last week that uh, is directed towards Jimmy. So I had on Morgan Tucker. She's the senior account executor executive at Little M. Tucker, a division of M. Tucker and Singer Equipment Company. She asked, regarding sustainable farming that you practice, how do you differentiate between the people who are doing the right thing with sustainability and those who are just using it as a buzzword and marketing ploy? I mean, I, I think that's a hard question. I mean, there's becoming more you know, cert- certifiable you know, programs like animal welfare approved uh, is, is, is one group. That's, I think that's what it's called. That's like certifying certain types of animals. Um, I don't think there's any set way to know other than I think you have to know your farmers. And, you know, one filter I use is green markets. I I feel like that green markets in in New York City, the Grow NYC green markets, has done a great job of of filtering out, you know, the frauds from from the real farmers that you should support. And they do farm inspections. They They only let farmers sell to green markets what they're actually growing. And um, there's nothing else like that. So if you go to any green markets in New York City, of which there's almost 60, you know that whoever's there has, has, has grown and made that product. And that's the closest we have in New York City to any real system. You know, certified organic is different. That kind of applies to more corporate food. Terrific. So that's my answer. Yeah, my guests ask the hard questions. <laughs> okay, so we're going to take another break here. We're going to come back and do my speed round game and talk some industry news. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Okay, we are back. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guests are Jimmy Carboni and Chef King Fujanakong. It is time for my speed round game. What this is, is I'm going to name two things and you pick your preference. There's no right or wrong. So here we go. Eat in or eat out? Eat in. Eat out. (laughs) Wine, beer, cocktail, Mocktail or cider? I'm throwing that in there. Uh, the first three, A, B, and C. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. You know, it's always beer, but cider more than, more often than not now, too. Yeah, no, you told me that the other day, so I figured maybe cider's going to win question. out over beer. <laughs> okay. Tasting menu or a la carte? A la carte. A la carte for me, too, unless 
It's like unless if I went to like Kuma Inn and King was there, yeah, and he would just start sending me food, I would take that any day. I tasting menus mm, again, it depends. I would agree with that. Small plates or large plates? Small plates. <laughs> We've been doing small plates uh, before as a trend. You know, Kuma Inn. I I started Kuma Inn with small plates. I mean, we're still doing small plates, and everywhere I go, I like to do small plates. I I think you get it. You get a feel for the the food and and what direction it is versus an entree like just one big plate and that's it you're limited there's 10 other things on the menu you might, might want to try and like me I, I wind up when i go out i just eat off of everybody's plate but with right. small plates you could order a bunch of small plates and everybody can pick and choose you like it a lot get another small plate i, I agree with them i think the small plates i think for years that there was a joke that you if you went to a restaurant you should order the appetizers because the large plate was just like well they had like the same amount of the good ingredient and then with like other fillers yeah okay how about communal table or chef's counter hmm <laughs> hey, again it depends where it is I, am I answering this as the diner or as the chef <laughs> you can interpret it however you would like communal table or chef's counter wow yeah I would be curious to know if your answer is different whether how you're thinking about uh, yeah, it yeah um you know, it has a lot to do with what Jimmy said earlier, like uh, a chef's counter. Yeah, if the chef's there, if the chef's my friend, I, I just feel, you know, a chef's table, it's intimate, right? And and I don't know, when you when you just say chef's table, I don't know if, if someone pays a certain amount of money, does that make it intimate? I, I don't think so. That's the same way I feel with a tasting menu. It's great. You could taste a few different things. Uh, I don't know. Communal table is nice, too. I like communal table. You sit down and meet some different okay. people. Order whatever you like. Nobody's going to bother you, you know. I, so I, okay. I guess I'm, I guess I'm leaning towards that way. And I would go chef's table if there's no pressure on either end. If there's no pressure for the from the customer, or there's no pressure from the chef. If it's just cool, laid back, and like if, if the three of us were eating and like, all right, let me cook something for you guys. That's, that's great. That's fine, you know. But if you're going to throw money mm-hmm. and say like, oh, I don't know this guy, but I heard the chef's table is good. Like, oh, here's a okay. That's Jimmy? My, my feeling. Great. If I'm working, I like to be behind a counter. So either I'm at a bar or a chef's counter, I prefer that. And as a customer, yeah, if I'm dining on my own, I like to sit at a counter. But, you know, if, if I have a nice group that, that there's a reason to have a dinner and we're kind of celebratory, I'll, I'll take the chef's table. Okay. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? Well, it's going to be a law soon, right? Or, <laughs> or I don't know. I don't know. It's 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 an interesting topic. You know, um, I hope not. Yeah, I mean, I still agree with tipping, and and I, you know, and I think everybody. Ple- well, if you're in the industry, you know, you should you tip properly, which a lot of people who aren't in the industry yeah, don't understand. But tipping is a big part of the whole uh, hospitality industry, and and you know, and I feel bad too coming as a, as a cook. Uh, you know. We don't get looked out for in the kitchen, right? We we get like the smallest salary. Uh, you know, the, the cooks never uh, get really what they deserve. Versus a server, the server comes in like right before service, whereas the cooks were in there the whole day prepping everything, doing everything, and uh, they come in for a few hours, talk to the guests, blah blah blah. Then they get a big huge tip, and we used to always hate it. They come back in the kitchen, like start and counting their tips. We're like, you better get the out of here with these tips count that shit in your house or something you know <laughs> unless you're gonna buy us around the drinks or something so um it's it's a tough thing but i i i okay. still agree with the, okay. i think tipping okay jimmy um, i think so too i think from from the worker's side is that that's your incentive to work and um it seems that most of the bartenders and waiters i do know do very well with their tips 
And um, it's also like an addition to what people are spending. I don't think that most restaurants could afford to operate without tips. Okay. A couple more. On social media, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram? And we'll do these quick because we're doing the speed round. Instagram's taking over. Okay. Managing front of the house or back of the house? <laughs> you like that one? Is that that's a quick question? <laughs> the short answer, I'll say. Uh, wow, I, I don't even know where to start on the short answer. I don't manage anybody, so <laughs> I know this. I'll stand behind the bar, stand at the door. I guess the kitchen. You know, I could say what I want in the kitchen. Nobody's going to hear me. Okay, I didn't know it was such a tough one, but it's great. Sounds like a job interview, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Okay, two more, two more. Cheese plate or dessert? Mm. Uh, <laughs> these are tough. I, yeah, I, I like both. Both, you know, I, yeah, I, I, man. I like both. I okay. start off with the cheese and go with something sweet <laughs> after. I eat everything, you know. You can't. Like. <laughs> Manhattan or Brooklyn? Oh, wow. Manhattan or Brooklyn. Oh. I'm I, Manhattan. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm Manhattan. I love Brooklyn, too, but uh, yeah, I'm Manhattan. Great. That's the game. Yeah. Love it. Yeah, it's it's. Do we get hired or not? <laughs> I love doing. So answers. you're the Donald Trump of of uh, restaurant industry. I don't know. Is that a good thing? <laughs> <laughs> Great. Okay, let's talk about uh, some industry news. So, in the Chicago Tribune, there was an article this week. Where have all the cooks gone? By Kevin Pang, and this has been a topic I've read about before. Um, this was highlighting or talking with a tight network of Chicago restaurateurs like Paul Cahan and Chris Pandle and them, you know, explaining how it's still a problem to get line cooks. And the article was talking about how, you know, uh, one of the reasons is there are more casual places opening and also there's places like Italy opening that maybe might be an easier place for someone to work or lifestyle. Um, so... I figured you guys know something about this. <laughs> I mean, that, that's always one of the toughest parts about the industry, about the business, is finding finding the right cooks, finding the right front of the house, and having them stay with you. Um, and, you know, we're here in a big city. We're in New York City. Chicago's big, too. You imagine, though, I got friends calling me up from Florida, like Miami, from from smaller places, Midwest, and does anybody want to move here? Hey, King, we're gonna we'll send them money. We'll move them out here. I mean, they look they can't even find anybody. At least yeah. here in the city, you can find people. It's just a matter of how you can retain them. But it's it's tough. It's definitely tough. And it, it, it depends on you know what what style of place it is. Like not just in line cooks, but in things like event event managers. Uh, you know, I think everybody wants. There's so many great places, whether it's hotel based. There's so many hotel restaurants now, and fine dining restaurants. I think that a lot of people. If they're, they think that's their career, they want to target that first. So for a lot of like more like us, call us mom and pops or these, these smaller independent places, you know, we really have to – it has to be the right kind of person that, that's going to work for us because there's, there's people that have a certain career in mind and they're going to target hotels and top restaurants. Um, so, yeah. But, I mean, I also was saying earlier that because it is hard to find good line cooks and prep cooks, I, ha- I have had in the past carried an extra cook. Because maybe I only needed them part time, but because I, I didn't, I, I didn't want to not have them that I, that I felt like I had to carry them full time. So, I've, yeah, because I'm a small independent place, I've had to overpay and keep yeah. keep extra guys around. Um, otherwise, I won't have anyone. So it's a strategy. It's a good strategy. 
But we're you know we are we're, and we're also competing. We are competing against like hotels and yeah. fine dining. And there's a lot more. I, would, I don't call them restaurant chains, but there are like groups that have multiple restaurants, and you know they're providing a different different opportunity for a lot of employees. You know, and uh, it's it's it is a struggle. It's the independents are really you know we're at a disadvantage, but at the same time we make up for it with personality and, and the fact that this is our business. I mean, you certainly it. do. <laughs> And that's why King, King and Jimmy, why not, right? All righty. Okay, so we're going to take one more break, and we're going to come back. We're going to do my solo dining experience. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Is it good? Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience, which this week is brought to you by One House Hospitality Headhunters. Follow them on Facebook and on Twitter at one underscore house and at Instagram at one house. And that's spelled O-N-E-H-A-U-S. So here's the rundown of my solo dinner at Tempura Matsui. Location, 222 East, 229th Street, Murray Hill, New York City. The concept, new intimate high-end Japanese restaurant featuring seasonal omakase menu with a focus on tempura. The owner, America's Utoo, Utoya, sorry, butcher that. They're part of a Japanese restaurant company. The chef is tempura master Maseo Matsui. Why did I go? Because I was curious to try a fine tempura tasting as it is done in Japan. My experience. I arrived for, for my 8 p.m. reservation and was seated at one of the nine seats at the chef's counter. I was presented with a tasting menu and a progression of food began immediately. I watched as the, as the chefs prepared tempura right in front of us. Matsui appeared briefly to greet all of the diners and the service staff was very gracious. What did I get? So the tasting menu began with senzei. A few appetizers, including homemade sesame tofu, shawan mushi, and assorted sashimi. Next came the tempura, an array of shrimp, seasonal fish, and vegetables served with tempura sauce with dashi, a fancy lemon squeezer, and salts. And then another small fish dish, followed by tendon over rice, akadashi miso soup, and ending with a sweet peach compote and some teas. My take... Honestly, I could have skipped all the appetizers and gone straight for the tempura, which was amazing. Light and full of flavor. My favorite bites were the shrimp head and king crab tempura. It was so good. The scene, couples and friends, mostly Americans. Perfect for tempura fans. Interesting tidbit. Chef Matsui, who spent over 40 years as a, as a tempura master in Japan, was lured out of retirement to open this restaurant. He is 65. Personal fun fact. 
I learned that you can eat the crunchy shrimp tail and that it's a good source of calcium. I also learned that the, the Japanese love the Beatles, as it was the soundtrack all evening. The cost, $200, not including tax and gratuity, gratuity, so it was a pricey one. Would I go back? Yes, for the tempura, if it was offered a la carte. Otherwise, it was a one-time experience for me. The website is tempuramatsui.com. I figure you might know something about this type of tempura, King. I love tempura, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was... Yeah, the tempura was fantastic. Um, it was just a, it was it was expensive, but I'm glad I went. Okay, so it's time for the final question. My next guest is John Winterman. He is the managing partner at Batard. Batard won the best new restaurant at James Beard Awards this year, as many accolades. And I've known John for a while. He's been he was a maitre d' at Danielle before. So, Jimmy and King, I wanted to see if you could ask him a question. Should we ask him a two-part question? Jim? Yeah. <laughs> How do you handle rowdy guests at Batard? Okay, great. Because there's a yeah, you know, there's that comes up a lot. And here's here's a tough one. This is pick your favorite dish on the menu and pair three drinks with it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now the whole second segment of my show is going to that question. <laughs> Terrific. Well, thank you guys so much. I, I have to make note that it's been Jimmy and King, and I keep thinking of Jimmy King from Michigan's Fab Five basketball. Jimmy King, oh, yeah. familiar at all? Well, King, we both used to be singers. King was a singer and guitar <laughs> player in a rock and roll band. So let's put in the pitch. Tito King's Kitchen, it's, it's the new kitchen and menu at Jimmy's number 43 in the East Village. And thanks for your support. We came back from the East Village disaster, and uh, we're going to be there for another 10 years serving a Filipino Thai food with great craft beer. Excellent. Well, thank you guys both so much for coming on the show. It's Thanks been for us. it's been really great. I have been talking with Jimmy Carboni of Jimmy's Number Forty Three. You can follow him at Jimmy Pots and Pan and at Jimmy's No No and O Forty Three for number. I've also been talking to Chef King Fujanakong of Kuma Inn and Umi Nam. You can follow him at Uma Kuma Inn underscore Umi Nam. And their hashtag is Tito King's Kitchen. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Sherry Bayer, Bayer PR, and All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry, and my website's BayerPublicRelations.com. As a reminder, all of our shows are archived on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are also on Stitcher and iTunes, so you can download our episodes as podcasts and listen anywhere, anytime. Thanks again to Jimmy and King, to my engineer Liz, and everyone out there listening. I'm Sherry Bayer. I'll be back next Wednesday at 4 o'clock with another live show. Thanks for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. Thanks for having us. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.